Revelation 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, those of you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. They will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give them the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these two churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, like all of those seven churches, they were very caught up in this whole practice of emperor worship. This was a big deal in the first century. The city of Pergamum had a whole bunch of temples in it, all kinds of temples, all kinds of shrines to various Greek gods and various Roman gods. And one of the temples that it had there was a temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, first emperor of the Roman Empire. And Pergamon was given the honour, the great honour, of being the first city to have a provincial temple dedicated to Caesar. This was not just a shrine, it wasn't just a monument, it wasn't just a tribute to Caesar as a leader. This was a place, this, this temple was staffed by priests and their, their active duty was to foster and facilitate the worship of Caesar by the citizens of Pergamon. 
That's what this temple was about. And we talked about this in our introduction. They had these emperor festivals several times a year and sacrifices would be made and songs would be sung in worship and homage would be paid to the emperor as to a god. So I imagine that when Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum and says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, he's probably got in mind that temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor. Now, he may have had in mind various temples. There were all kinds of gods being worshipped. But I think one of the big issues here is the worship of the emperor and how toxic that is. And I can imagine that Jesus was perhaps thinking of that particular temple when he writes to this church and says, I know where you live. You're, You're right at the foot of Satan's throne because Jesus could see that even though this was a temple worshipping a man, that behind it all was the influence of the evil one. Behind it all was the influence of the devil, Satan, who stands opposed to the purposes and the plans of God. And whenever there is false worship and whenever there is idolatry, Satan is involved and Satan is masterminding. And so Jesus sees this and he writes this so that the church in Pergamum knows and sees what's really going on here. Now, Thyatira was a bit different. Thyatira was a really commercial city. All kinds of businesses in Thyatira, and particularly businesses in the textile and manufacturing industry. And because there were so many businesses in Thyatira, there were all these trade guilds that sprang up. Trade associations where where carpenters or silversmiths or textile manufacturers could get together for support and to set industry standards and the same kinds of things that trade unions or associations or guilds would do today. But this practice of emperor worship was so woven through the fabric of everyday life that even if you belonged to a trade guild, even if you were a carpenter, you went along to your carpentry trade guild, that trade guild, that meeting, would include homage being paid to the emperor. It would include worship being made, veneration of the emperor, and often these trade guilds would select particular deities as patron deities of that particular trade guild. So it wasn't just as simple as getting together with other people in your industry for support and to set various regulations and industry guidelines, you would be invoking Apollo or or Asclepius or Demeter as the god of your trade guild, and they would be seen as offering protection and providence and guidance and wisdom over the functioning of your industry and your association. You see how there is no separation between religious and non-religious. It's all woven together. The worship of the emperor and the worship of all other, the pantheon of gods, was just part of everyday life. This is the world in which these Christians are trying to work out their faith and trying to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is writing to them to do, to help them understand how can you be faithful to me in the midst of all this. Now, there's plenty in these churches that Jesus has to encourage them with. There's some really uplifting words here. He talks especially to Thyatira. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and you're doing more now than you were at first. There's obviously a lot of people in these churches who are remaining faithful to God, committed to Jesus. But there's also some significant problems. And these two churches are similar in that it seems like in both cases there are some troublemakers, some particular so-called leaders or prophets in these churches who were leading other people astray. Now, they have names, names that Jesus gives them. In in, in the case of Pergamum, the name he gives this person is Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And then in the case of Thyatira, he singles out this woman Jezebel. Now, 
Balaam and Jezebel are not their actual names. They're not the real names of these people in these churches. Jesus gives them those names because what he's doing is going back to some Old Testament stories where Balaam and Jezebel were characters in Israel's history. And he's imposing those personas on these people to show what they're really like. So he's actually giving them a category or a label that's supposed to invoke some associations. I won't go into the story now of Balaam and Jezebel. You can read them in Numbers and I think it's First Kings with Jezebel. But, but they really are there in the, in the Old Testament history and they're very interesting in, in both cases, very similar. Guilty of a very, very similar thing. Both of those people entice Israel away from the worship of God, from the worship of Yahweh, to worship the god Baal, which is a foreign god of the Canaanites. So in, quite explicitly, Jezebel actually tried to kill the prophets of God and they're both trying to get Israel to be less faithful to God and more faithful to this foreign pagan god, this idol, Baal, over here. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's taking these characters from the Old Testament, these antagonists of God, and he is saying, now these people here, let's call them Fred and Mary, in the churches in the first century, you guys are like Balaam and you're like Jezebel in what you're trying to do. You are trying to drag my people away from worshipping God, and you are trying to entice them to worship other gods. That make sense? You see how this is working? And so specifically what they're guilty of doing is leading these Christians away from God into sexual immorality and into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I think there's probably a little bit of code going on here. The food sacrificed to idols probably is a reference to all kinds of practices of emperor worship. It may include the eating of particular foods, but it may also include participating in emperor festivals, singing hymns to Caesar as to a god, being in these trade guilds that had particular deities watching over them, all of these kinds of practices, probably all summed up in this idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. It's participating in activities and events where the emperor is being worshipped. And this reference to sexual immorality, scholars disagree a little bit over this. I tend to think it's metaphorical. In Revelation, often the image of sexual immorality is used for unfaithfulness. Not literally sexual immorality, but unfaithfulness to God. Abandoning God, selling out to him, and going and worshipping some other God, some other person, some other thing. So it may be that the sexual immorality is not literally happening so much in these churches, but it's, it's a figurative expression to say you are being unfaithful to God in the way that you are participating in the worship of the emperor. So, put all this together, what you've got then are these these leaders and little movements within the churches of people saying to other Christians, it doesn't really matter if you get involved in these activities and events where Caesar is being worshipped. It doesn't really matter if you belong to these trade guilds. You might say a prayer to this particular deity. You might invoke Apollo's name in worship, but so what? No big deal. That's what Balaam and Jezebel are doing. They're saying it doesn't really matter if you stand outside your house and sacrifice a lamb in these emperor processions. That's no big deal. You can still follow Jesus and do these things. Because if you didn't, think of how it would hurt your business. If you didn't, think of how it would hurt your standing in society with all of your clients and customers. Think of how it would hurt you socially, even within your own family perhaps. So, so don't worry. You can serve Jesus and still get involved in these things. This is just part of being involved in a city in the first century. That's what Balaam and Jezebel are saying. They are leading these Christians to accommodate themselves to the empire and to its ways. 
Now, obviously we live in different times. No longer in the Roman Empire. Not many of you belong to trade associations that are trying to have patron deities hovering above you. Perhaps you do. But we have a whole different set of circumstances today. Now, it's easy when you come to apply this stuff today, it's tempting, isn't it, to look around and try and find particular individuals who fit the description of Balaam and Jezebel. Just have a quick look at the person beside you and see, do they seem to fit this description? Any Balaams, any Jezebels out there, any dodgy, some of your dodgy characters, but not in this way. You know, it's, and, and often what happens, sadly, within the church is that we get into pastors like this and it becomes a witch hunt. Where's the Balaams? Where are the, and you know, the, you know the titles we start to pull out? False teachers. Where are those false teachers? Where are those false? And look, I, I, I don't mean to be frivolous with that because there's, there's certainly an issue in the church. But we can throw those labels around far too loosely. I've heard people like Bill Hybels, like Rick Warren, described as false teachers. Not only is that inappropriate, but it's completely destructive to the worker. Whether or not you agree with everything they write and say, it actually undermines real, the real work of finding and identifying false teachers in the church. When you start widening the net like that, it's just, it's just nonsense. So I wonder whether a more helpful line of inquiry here is to, not to ask where are the individual belongs and let's find them, but in what ways are we being tempted as a church to do what these churches were doing? Because the letters are written, they're not written to Balaam and Jezebel, they're written to the church generally. And so the question is, in what ways are we being enticed to accommodate ourselves to the empires in our own world? Whether they're by particular individuals or not, in what ways are we tempted to sell out and compromise and dilute our faith within the context of empires and cultures that we live within? Now, surely today, there's, there's different lines of application you could run here, and you might want to explore some others in your life group. But surely, one of the most predominant empires that we live in today is the empire of consumerism. I would say, within the West, this is our big story, culturally speaking. It provides the framing narrative for the way most people, including us most of the time, live our lives. Driven by an insatiable desire to earn more money, you've got to continue increasing your revenue, you've got to find ways of increasing your money, your cash flow, so that you can participate in the consumer economy, so that you can be consumptive. And when it comes to consumption, it's all about not so much just having more, but having the next thing. We've talked about this before, having the next. When it comes to money, the key word is more, but when it comes to consumption, the key word is always next. It's the next experience. It's the next restaurant. It's the next phone. It's the next handbag. It's the next travel experience. It's the next cafe. It's the next whatever I don't have that everyone else has. And the reason you've got to have the next thing is because your identity's tied to it, because your lifestyle is tied to it relative to other people. And you can't be seen to be slipping behind the relative lifestyle of other people. So you've got to keep up. We've got to keep producing more money so that we can keep being hyper-consumptive in this way. And what we leave behind us in the consumer empire is a trail of discarded and disposed of products because who needs the old iPad when the new one comes out? So we replace, we upgrade far quicker than we need to, far sooner than these things have passed their functional value because we've got to have the next product because our social status and our identity is tied to it. This has huge implications in turn for environmental issues because we're leaving a massive trail of waste in our wake, but we don't care about that. We haven't got time to worry about it because we're too busy making more money so that we can purchase the next thing. 
Welcome to the consumer empire. This is where we live and this is how we live. And what I find extraordinary about consumerism is not so much the the way the empire itself works, but the way in which Christians, including me, so blindly and willingly embrace it. It's like we just don't even ask questions. We barely give it a second thought. We have just jumped into this whole worldview so, so completely that it's frightening. There's no coincidence that in the last half of the 20th century, as the whole consumer empire started to heat up, there was a parallel movement in the church, a parallel theological movement, so-called theological movement, called the prosperity gospel. There's absolutely no coincidence that those things have happened together because the, the, the prosperity gospel is a mirror image of the consumer culture, thoroughly influenced by it. The prosperity gospel basically says that one of God's highest priorities for you is that you would be prosperous, financially and materially prosperous, that you would be rich. You need more money. You have to be rich. This is the way God wants you to be. This is God's desire for you, is to be rich. Sounds good so far. And the way in which you can get rich is twofold. One, by living an obedient and righteous life. And two, by giving copious amounts of money away, usually to the person talking to you. All right. Usually to the one talking to you about the whole deal is the one you've got to be giving the money to. You know, One of the worst examples of this, and I've only read about it, but I read an article in Christianity Today, is the way this whole teaching has just ravaged Africa. It's just incredible. The way these itinerant preachers would come around to impoverished villages, preach prosperity gospel, milk these congregations that already had very, very little, prop up their own lifestyles and move on to the next village. It's an incredible example of actually contributing to poverty in the name of Jesus. It's perhaps as close as you can get to Balaam and Jezebel in the contemporary church. But it takes all kinds of forms, doesn't it? I've got a CD at home. I won't say the name of the artist, but a worship leader. He was kind of bigger in the 90s than he is today. And look, I genuinely enjoy his stuff and think he's a good worship leader. But there's one song on this album. It's called Give to the Lord. And I'll read you the bridge of the song. People rob God when they don't give tithes and offerings. You've got to actually imagine singing this in worship, you know. People rob God. And I mean, how? And then the next line. And they don't understand why they've been cut off from heavenly blessings. But abundant life and prosperity begins when you prove your love to God by giving to him. So now let me just say, some of this is okay. So there is there is certainly truth in this. It is a reflection of our love for Christ that we would be prepared to contribute financially to our local church, other organisations. It's not wrong wholesale. But to say that abundant life and prosperity, and you know they're talking about financial prosperity, begins when you prove your love to God by giving to him is just leading people down such an unhealthy path. And the problem is that prosperity teachers will come to passages in Scripture Like where Jesus says, give and it will come back to you, which is the key line in that song, give and it will come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, a good measure. And they will read into this, finances are going to come back to me. Money is going to come back to me. Any time in scripture that it promises reward, that reward is instinctively interpreted in financial and material terms. Of course it is. What other way would God possibly reward us 
This is the way consumerism thinks. If God's, if God's offering a reward, it's got to be money. What else is important to me? You see how the thinking goes? So they come to two passages. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Well, he must be talking about money. Surely, you know. So the interpretation, when Jesus says, um, I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full, have it to abundance. Well, he must be talking about money. He must be talking about prosperity because that's how we define abundant life. How does the empire of consumerism define the abundant life? You're filthy rich and you're hyper-consumptive. That's the abundant life. All that prosperity teaching has done is taken that definition and, and read it back into the Bible and applied it back into Scripture. So they read the Bible with this consumerism lens on. It is basically a gospel of the empire. It's an imperial gospel that is more of a mirror image of the consumer society we're living in than it is an attempt to actually critique that. What we should be doing as faithful Christians is allowing the reading of Scripture to critique the culture that we're living in of obsession over money and lifestyle and materialism. We should not automatically think that when Jesus says, I've come to give you abundant life, life to the full, that we read that financially and materially. We're just complete products of our culture when we do that. Instead, we should be asking ourselves, what does abundant life really look like? What is this abundant life? Isn't it? I mean, haven't prosperity gospel teachers read the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and what what you're going to drink, what clothes you're going to wear? God clothes the sparrows of the field. Isn't he more going to clothe you? Haven't they read Jesus' words when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, treasures on earth rather, where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Haven't they read his words when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added unto you because your heavenly Father knows what you need. It's like we've just screened out that stuff in favour of this other stuff, poorly interpreted stuff. We need to recapture a biblical vision of abundant life, not defined in material terms, but understanding that Jesus came to free us from obsessing over money not to focus us more on it as some kind of goal and reward, free us from having to centre our lives around it, free us from having to have anxiety go through the roof over money and finances and lifestyle. Jesus came to set you free from that, not to steep you back in it. So I'm just giving you one example here of the way in which we can be enticed away by the teaching of the empire. That is an example of how the consumerism empire has deeply influenced and affected the church. Now, you might say, well, that's not me, and I don't subscribe to prosperity teaching, therefore I am clean, pure, and white, and I am uncontaminated by the empire. But think for a minute of some other areas where this could apply. Think of your own workplace. Is it possible that the practices of consumerism, driven as they are, basically by greed, have influenced who you are in the context of your business. I was listening to a Christian businessman speak the other day and he, was, he used to work for IBM in the States. He was talking about how they used to, as a salesperson, they used to call his role sales consultant. He used to be a sales consultant. And so he'd go around different businesses and talk to them about their IT needs and how IBM could help them meet those needs through IBM products. 
And then at a certain point, IBM decided they weren't generating enough revenue from their sales department, so they renamed all their sales consultants software consultants. In an attempt to try and make them sound like they weren't selling IBM products, but they were just consulting about software needs. And it kind of had this perception of impartiality and objectivity to it. But of course, all they're doing is selling IBM. And this guy, as a Christian, shared how he really wrestled with that. That he felt that there was some, some slanting of the truth in that title. And that his prospective clients weren't able to see clearly what his role really was. And that he was being a little bit duplicitous. So he had to figure out, well, what does a Christian do in this scenario? The way he resolved it was that he just kept calling himself a sales consultant to prospective clients, just just quietly, I suppose, but he just kept calling himself and referring to himself as that because he felt it was the most honest way to represent himself. See, sometimes these kinds of practices are imposed on you by your employers, by your superiors, to act in ways that you might find a little bit questionable, act in ways that can be driven by corporate greed and a complete obsession with the bottom line. So you've got to wrestle with what that means. What does it mean not just to be a business person, but to be a Christian business person? Shouldn't that adjective modify the noun a little bit? Shouldn't it make a difference that you are a Christian business person? At some point, does that affect your ethics? What if you're self-employed? What if you, what if you manage other people? What if you've got your own business? Think about the way you treat your employees. Are you treating them fairly? Are you treating them with dignity? Are you treating them humanly? Or are you trying to exploit them, get as much out of them as you can, for as little cost as you possibly can, and in the process, just slightly dehumanizing the way that you treat people? How honest and transparent is your marketing? How hidden are the costs and risks to your clients and customers? How promptly do you pay your bills? This room's gone very quiet. <laughs> See, these are, these are honest questions, aren't they? Honest questions to ask about how much have we subtly, perhaps without even realising it, started following Balaam and Jezebel and being captivated and seduced by the empire. Because at the end of the day, everyone else in your industry is doing it. Your competitors are doing it. Why on earth aren't you? Because you follow Jesus. Isn't that the answer? Because you are citizens of a different kingdom and a different reality. Even in your own heart, has greed got a hold? Are you... Unnecessarily, unnecessarily obsessed by money? Are you pouring an unhealthy amount of time and effort and resource into generating more and more revenue, more and more money? And can you honestly, as you sit here this morning before God, detect that subtly greed has got a hold on your heart? It's a tough one to identify, isn't it? It's not like these overt sins of the flesh that are obvious for the world to see. This is so subtle. And Satan will get a foothold. See, Balaam and Jezebel don't stand outside the, the church with big placards saying, commit sin. They entice their way into your heart over a long period of time and a whole series of tiny little small compromises 
until you don't even realize that you are no longer following the way of Jesus, but you're just a product of the empire. That's why Jesus is writing to these churches to help them see what they otherwise couldn't see and get them to wake up and in fact call them to repent. That's the response, friends. If you sense honestly this morning that you've been a little bit seduced by the empire of greed, consumerism, materialism, the response that God asks of you is not wallowing in self-pity, not wallowing in self-misery, not feeling guilty and condemned. That is not the intention. That's not my heart. I hope you can see that this morning. It's never to tear down. The heart of these letters, the heart of Jesus, is that you would be built up, but first by repenting. And that means acknowledging it to God, naming it to God, speaking it to him, and telling him honestly the ways in which you struggle with this and the ways in which greed has got a hold on your heart, your business practices, your own personal dealings with money, affluence, and lifestyle or the pursuit of money, and then turning around, changing direction and renewing your commitment to different practices, different ways of living, even if it hurts economically, socially, vocationally, even if it comes at a cost. I think Jesus knew that it would come at a cost, and I think that's why at the end of each of these letters he holds out this reward because he knows these Christians are struggling away and it's hard. It's hard being faithful to the kingdom and faithful to Christ in the midst of the empire. And so he holds out these rewards. And there's a few of them listed here. Again, have a chat about them in your life groups. But let me just tell you the one that I found most intriguing at the end of the letter to Pergamum, where he says, to those who are victorious, I'll give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. In Pergamum, one of the temples there was a shrine to the god Asclepius, god of healing. People would go to the shrine, they would be diagnosed with whatever illness, they would be given some remedy, they would be given some uh, things to take, some things to do, and this would all be in the name of Asclepius, the god of healing, and it would all be done in tribute and homage to him. And then as they came out of this temple complex, there would be these white stones there, like headstones, about the size of a headstone. And you would write on this, you would, you would engrave on it your name and the illness you suffered and you would give thanks to Asclepius for the healing that you had received or would receive as a testament that it was Asclepius who was doing the healing. And here's Jesus, isn't it brilliant? That he, the way you can take these cultural images and he says, if you remain true to me, if you endure, if you persevere, you remain single-mindedly devoted to me, in the face of the empire, I'm going to give you a white stone. When Jesus returns, you are going to be healed fully. Not by some pagan God, but by Jesus. Your image will be truly renewed in the image of God and this white stone will have your name on it. This new identity that God's going to give you. Not the identity of the present, torn apart as it is by sin. Not your present identity pulled this way by the empire and then pulled back that way by the kingdom of God. Not this empire, not this identity ravaged by all kinds of temptations and vices, but a new identity set free from sin, set free from the empire, renewed and pure in the new creation, that identity. And the reason I think, it's a little bit speculative, but the reason I think the only person who's going to know that name is you 
It's because only you will know how far God's brought you. When you receive that new identity and the new creation, only you will truly know just what an amazing work God's done to get you from there to here. Just how far he had to reach down and pick you up. Just what he's had to heal you from internally and externally. And what a mighty work of redemption he's done. You're, you're the only one who will really know that. That's why I think that identity, others will see it, but only you're truly going to know it. Because you're going to know what God has done through this sinner and how much his grace has worked in your life. So I think Jesus is saying to you, to me, remember the white stone. In your workplace, in your home, in your social environment, remember that white stone because it's brutally, brutally hard. In the face of a consumer empire, when you're the only one in your workplace that's not lowering certain standards because you want to be faithful to Jesus. When you're the only one in your industry that is refusing to compromise in certain ways. When you're the only one of your competitors. When you're the only one in your social circle that is living in certain ways because you are seeking to be faithful to Jesus. It's incredibly, incredibly lonely. And it can hurt you in real ways, economically and financially and socially and otherwise. And Jesus is simply saying, hey, remember the white stone. Never take your eyes off the white stone. When he returns, he's standing there with this white stone just for you. Remember that new identity and hang in there. Hang in there with faithfulness. Hang in there with perseverance. Hang in there with a single-hearted devotion to Jesus and his kingdom. Don't listen to the voices of Balaam and Jezebel. Don't be enticed and seduced subtly by the voice of the empire. But listen to the one voice, the only voice that is worth truly listening to, the voice of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that would be true of us. God, it's frightening to think of the ways that the empire has got a hold on our lives, ways that we don't even realise. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear this morning what you are saying to the church and to our own lives. Spirit of God, I pray that you would bring right now, that you would bring conviction healthy and loving conviction of things in our lives where we may be accommodating to the empire and listening to the voice of Balaam and Jezebel. Jesus, if there are ways in which greed has got a subtle hold in our heart, I pray that you'd bring them to our attention right now. If there are ways in which we have an unhealthy obsession and focus with money, with lifestyle, with material things, I pray you'd bring that front and centre into our consciousness right now. Convict us right where we sit. And Spirit of God, even as those things are coming to our mind right now, we name them to you, we confess them to you, we own them. We don't shrink back. We we, we own these things, Jesus, and we just want to say we're sorry. We're sorry that these things have got a grip on our hearts. We're sorry we've listened to Balaam. We've listened to Jezebel. We've run off and been enticed by them. We're so easily led astray. But Jesus, even as we say those things, we sense again your healing grace coming into our lives. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Some of you just need to hear that. There is no condemnation. Jesus, free us from self-pity. I'm so conscious that these things can go, just become a, a spiral downwards into depression. Lord, that's not what we want either. Jesus, set us free from these things. Just enable us to know your healing and your freeing grace in our lives. Set us free from the things that trap us. Set us free from the things that bind us. Set us free from the things that have got our hearts in chains this morning. You have set us free on the cross. So God, we pray you'd set us free in our hearts. Free to love you and serve you with single-minded devotion and full allegiance to you, Jesus. We will serve no other master. We will bow down before no other idol. We will take no other gods to ourselves. No matter how subtle, no matter how seductive, we will remain faithful to you, Jesus with our eyes fixed on that white stone. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your boundless grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.